Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Is populism conservative? To what extent is the Republican Party Trump's party? And are the Democrats lacking in political talent? To answer all of these questions, I'm joined by the Anglo-American writer and author of The Dish Substack, Andrew Sullivan. Has the American right forgotten conservatism? The question really is whether ever really understood it. But insofar as it has moved dramatically away from the sense of limited government and the rule of law and gradual change, if those can be understood as three important aspects of conservatism, then yes, it's completely lost its way. I think the, the decision to attack the very process of a transfer of power, peaceful transfer of power, is a pretty major Rubicon to cross when you have actually declared and the de facto leader of the Republican Party, if that is Donald Trump, has declared the electoral system illegitimate. He's still calling it illegitimate. And I think when, when I talk to my British friends about this and they start making arguments in defense of Trump or in some ways more sympathetic to him, I'm, I'm just like, can you imagine if there was an election in the United Kingdom and the morning after the election, it was clear someone had won, but the existing prime minister refused to move and then summoned a mob to prevent the other person entering number 10 Downing Street, I think that prime minister would be tarred forever as an enemy of the crown, as a violator of the constitution, as a radical thug. And if two years later, the party he represented is still claiming he has a right to stay there, then we've left any vague connection with defense of a liberal democracy, its traditions, its processes, and its, its shared assumptions. That's about as bad as it gets. I mean, you can argue about policies to the nth degree, and we should. And there are things that Trump has said in policy terms that are completely defensible in some respects. But you can't, can't do something like this not cop to it, not even still this man, this madman is going around the country still claiming he won in a landslide, that the whole thing is a massive fraud and rigged, that nothing went wrong on January 6th, it was a little demonstration, as he put it, that got out of control, when we now know that that person, Donald J. Trump, systematically plotted to find a way to prevent the peaceful transfer of power based on nothing but his own fevered imagination. And that is a political party which still takes that person seriously, that hasn't purged him, is not a democratic, let alone conservative political party. It is a, it is a radical mob. It's the questioning of the very basics of our society, of our liberal society and our democracy that's really what's at stake here. It's this issue of radicalism that I find interesting. And in recent years, you've seen both sides become more radical. I've just read a great biography of Lord Salisbury. And, and I want to talk about your sort of philosophy of conservatism, obviously, the Michael Oakeshott sort of line of conservatism. And there's this great quote from Lord Salisbury. And he says, whatever happens will be for the worse. And therefore, it is in our interests that as little should happen as possible. Do you think the culture wars have made this maxim irrelevant? No, I think it's made it more relevant than ever, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, if you look at what's happening with this radicalism versus radicalism, which has no intent even to meet in the middle at any point, 
There's no, there's no desire for a compromise at some point in this culture war. There is no desire to say, oh, well, this is so far, no further, or this is a good step to take now. It becomes something other than politics. It becomes warfare, rhetorical warfare, but rhetorical warfare that continues indefinitely will at some point, if it's a zero-sum game, if there's no possible compromise available, will at some point lead to violence is leading to violence. And that's what happens when a democracy unravels. I'm more Burkean than Salisburyan. In other words, I'm not quite as um, do-nothing as Salisbury, although he did perfect that art of doing nothing. And certainly, choosing moments to do nothing is very important for any political leader. But society changes, technology changes, demography changes, climate change, I mean, everything changes. And so the goal of the conservative is not to resist all change, but to accommodate what makes sense and to do so on a pragmatic and sensible middle ground. And it's not as inspiring as we're going to bring the Republic to the ground and turn it to ashes and rebuild it in some new white nationalist vision, but it's conservatism. And I do think there is a conservative critique, a very strong one, of the way the left has conducted itself and the way in which the elites have conducted themselves over the last 20 to 30 years. And that's an important critique, I think, to understand and to implement policies that can reflect that critique. But throwing away the entire system because of someone's vanity, that's not even close to where we should be. And having these absolutist positions that can never brook compromise, I don't agree. Now, in the culture, I think the left has by far the most responsibility for this because they have absolutely taken a whole new dynamic based on critical theory, which is basically a denial of individual rights, a fundamental attack on liberal democracy as simply a mask for power, largely what they call white power. Then the just imposition of these doctrines on people who don't agree with them or never even heard of them. And then when they resist, they're told they're bigots and fascists. Well, that's obviously going to create the conditions for radical opposition to radicalize the right. And one reason I think the younger generations here, Republican generations are so radical is that they have gone to college and you go there for 10 minutes and not be a rabid critical race theorist, and you, you will become radicalized. It's a fascinating process by which the far left is simply producing disciples of the far right in a dynamic that no one seems to be able to break, that keeps continuing, and partly because we're not reaching compromises. I don't want to banish the left from the political discourse, nor the right, but we have to have some idea that at some point to govern all of us, we make some kind of compromise, and that's okay. And in that spirit of compromise and sort of toning down the debate, I do want to ask just very briefly on, on a phrase you used there about white nationalism. Do you really think that the Republican Party or Trump supporters are white nationalists? That seems to me to be a bit of an exaggeration. It is if you refer to all of them as such, yes. But it's definitely a motivator for a clique that is definitely there and hasn't been firmly ejected. When you see the Proud Boys, for example, as a or near paramilitary group that were instigating in the January 6th insurrection, a group which the then president of the United States, Trump, told to stand back and stand by if he weren't to win the election. Well, at that point, you are saying, here's the president of a party invoking a, an explicitly white nationalist group to take to wait for his instructions to take action if necessary. I think it's important to acknowledge that has taken place. But it's a tiny now, minority, so I, right? It's hard to tell how big or small is it. I would say it's 15% maybe of the Republican base, but it, it exercises more sway than it should, I'm afraid. In reality, of course, the critique of leftism, which is you're on your own without the cops because cops are evil and oppressive, we don't intend to actually police the border because 
we don't care. And because anyway, they're all going to vote for us in the end. We're going to make Latino people, Hispanic people, people from South America, abandon the sex binary. Probably the most ridiculous assertion so that we, so that a culture whose very language is derived from the sex binary now has to call themselves Latinx because otherwise they will offend the 0.3% of Latino people who are transgender, who aren't offended anyway. <laughs> it's, it's, of course, these policies from the left have engendered a rising support for the Republican Party from minorities. The, the one thing we saw, for example, in the 2020 election was that the reason Joe Biden won is because he won more white men than Clinton did. He lost ground among Latinos and some African-Americans. And the Latino vote in particular is moving quite radically. It's, I mean, it's hard to tell because they're polling in different places and the Latino community is incredibly diverse. In other words, you can't really talk about Cubans in Miami and, and Mexicans in Southern California or Texas. It's, it's dumb to equate them all, but they're moving. They're moving quite fast. And I think we also see younger men, white men uh, in particular, just tired of being told every day that they're monstrous would-be rapists when all they're doing is uh, doing what they've always done, which is just be unapologetically male. So you can see where I'm at. I'm, it's a terrible position to be in, really, because you don't want to support these crazy lefties. And they, they do dominate Biden. He's basically their sock puppet at this point. It's between the devil and the deep Red Sea, as it were. <laughs> then you're enabling this radicalism in this party that seems to want to tear everything down. And they don't really care. They, they're really nihilistic. Is it possible to be a conservative and a populist? No. Or rather, to an extent, yes. <laughs> but no, conservatives believe in the process of democracy and the respect for democracy and the defense of our system because the system we developed hasn't developed by accident is actually an incredible inheritance from the past. Liberal democracy is a rare thing in human history. We in the West managed to create it. And my view is that conservatism is the defense of that order. There's no going back to the Middle Ages. There's no going back to an overwhelmingly Christian country. There just isn't. I mean, unless you want another Cromwell, unless you want another extraordinary authoritarian to do it. So the goal is to make the changes as undamaging as possible and to make them as productive as possible. So I'll give you a simple example, which is that's one of the things that I campaigned for for many, many times was marriage equality. So there you have a shift in the society in which gay people are much more self-confident and aware and growing in self-confidence and presence in the society. What do we do about that? Well, it seems to me we attempt to integrate those people into the existing system so that we can extend that system by co-opting objections to it. Now, that's the classic Tory position, it seems to me. It was Disraeli's position. In some ways, it was Thatcher's position, reaching out to working class people who wanted to own a home or wanted to get on in life. So that's how, I, that's how I see conservatism as it is populist. But the populism view, which is that elites are always wrong, that the voice of the people is what ultimately decides things, I'm not ultimately a conservative position. Ultimately a position which requires one to overthrow all elites, to have direct democracy or any, any of these other opportunities. And, and representative democracy is not populist. When do things get so bad that conservatives should become radicals because obviously populists would argue that the left have formed a sort of cultural revolution across Western societies and that it's time to overthrow the elites that have been completely captured by these radicals. So for example, if you were in Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany, to be a conservative 
in those systems would not necessarily be aligning with those philosophical values of supporting democracy and whatever. And uh, they may argue that you need some radicalism in order to change the system because the system has become so, uh, let's say today, left wing or whatever. So when, does, when do things get so bad that conservatives should become more radical or more populist? Well, they should never go to the point at which they're supporting the overthrow of the entire existing order. <laughs> that, that is... Even if the existing order is morally corrupt and everything else? Well, it isn't. It isn't. And it's a lie that it is. And that's the critical point. We still have a democracy. We still have all the trappings of constitutional democratic order. The representatives have taken positions and policies that are unpopular and not been responsive. The response to which is to elect others who will do that. You don't have to dismantle the entire system to do that. Nor do you have to attack every single element. I mean, I don't, for example, let's take universities, which is an important topic. There's no doubt to me that most of these higher bastions of education are, at this point, entirely ideological entities. Not, well, entirely is, is an exaggeration, but they have been captured. So what does a government do? Well, a conservative has two in impulses here. The first impulse is it's not government's role to go in and boss around private institutions, even if you're publicly funded, you don't want the government dictating what people learn in. On the other hand, you don't want those universities teaching people that their entire society is rooted in white supremacy and is fundamentally wicked. And I know there are strong debates about this. And I guess I come out wishy-washy. I, I just think at some point, either you believe that a free society will correct itself or you believe that a government or a faction has to come in and do it for it. And all I'm saying is that I do think there's a middle way sometimes between those two instincts. In other words, you could insist as a condition of funding universities that there really be diversity of opinion, or that certainly anybody's allowed to speak freely on campus and have a strong defense of that free speech. But coming in and running universities themselves, including their curriculum, or appointing professors, that that gets too close to, and again, what happens when government changes parties? Do they also get to appoint everybody in universities and, and to rig the teaching for them? You can see the, the tension here. I am the, as it were, I guess I've been forced in this. I understand the impulse to overthrow these people because they're incredibly intolerant. They do it to you in a second and... I guess, so you have this pragmatic decision. Do we go to war or do we wait this out a bit? Let's see how this runs out. My own view is that the arguments of critical theory are self-evidently bullshit. That the world is much more complicated than they argue. That the idea that the West, the West is a system most designed to oppress minorities is bonkers. <laughs> and much of this is is ridiculous academic theorizing. And when it hits the ground, people are going to have a response to it. And you're seeing that here. You're seeing them saying, no, we do not want four or five-year-olds to be taught that they can choose to be a boy or a girl. No, they bloody can't. And stop being so stupid. It's not like we haven't been through periods in which leftists have tried to seize command of the institutions. Basically, you don't want to destroy the the village in order to save it. That's, that's really what I'm saying. Now, sometimes radicalism in policy is, is a good thing because things have gotten out of hand. And I would, for example, if I were running the federal government, abolish all diversity, inclusion, equity crap. And you can do that. And if you ran on that, you'd probably win. I do think you can win democratic majorities within the existing system that reform some of these excesses. Call me an old-fashioned conservative. I'm, you know, I don't think a conservative should ever, ever support radical subversion of a political system. It's, it's not who we are. So some of the Trump voters in America, and even in Britain, you, let's look at Brexit, for example. We voted for Brexit, and the elites spent three years trying to reverse that referendum result, despite the, the democratic decision. 
And in America, there are people who argue that, well, we voted for Trump and we voted for these Republicans, and yet he was frustrated, and they are frustrated generally, by people within what they call, let's say, the deep state or in Britain, the blob. And these are civil servants or bureaucrats in, let's say, you know, government institutions like the FBI or in different, various different departments, you know, the Treasury or whatever. And that this is not democracy working. This is an example of where voters elect politicians to enact a manifesto, maybe similar to what you're saying about diversity and inclusion. Let's scrap this, for example. They're unable to do so. I mean, one example in Britain is the government said that we would scrap unconscious bias training for civil servants in 2020. Now, it's still mandatory for all civil servants two years on. Why has that happened? Why hasn't that been reversed? Because civil servants are refusing to do so. So if the democratic system isn't working, isn't it time to reform those institutions in which, which have been captured by those sort of left-wing ideologues? Yes, but they are still subject to political direction. If Boris Johnson hasn't imposed that and seen it through, it's his fault, not theirs. You, yes, you're going to have to clean some house if you get it. You're going to have to see who is violating their civil duty in resisting the duly elected government's duly desired policy. Civil servants do not have a right to question this. They, they, they have an obligation to do it. And I think if you were to say, elect me to keep doing this, because I look how I'm succeeding in doing it, you would win an election. I don't, in other words, I don't think the views of the arguments of critical theory or the bullshit of unconscious bias, which has been, which has been debunked now <laughs> dozens of times, they're not popular. Sometimes you just have to get out there and be a popular politician. I mean, Boris Johnson won the biggest majority in forever, precisely by saying, I'm going to, I'm proving to you, I can overrule these elites and get it done. Now, that's a proof of principle. You could do that otherwise. Unfortunately, Boris doesn't have the discipline, the grasp of government, the ability as Thatcher did, for example, to really drill down and make sure these different departments are in line because he's, I think he's just too lazy or distracted or too easily fobbed off by his um, liberal friends. But I don't think it's impossible. In fact, I think it's incredibly fecund area. Now, if you imagine Ron DeSantis becoming president, do you really think he's not going to really attempt to do some of this stuff within? Of course he is. If he were to run on that, he would win. In other words, I think there is a perfectly legitimate conservative critique of all this stuff that has popular support that requires simply administrative skill and a marshalling of real public opinion to affect change. This is not easy. It shouldn't be easy. We shouldn't be able to change our government overnight. It's going to take a process. And then the rest of us need to be out there making the arguments in public as to why these policies are dumb, why they are actually horribly divisive, why they're toxifying workplaces, why they make it's impossible for institutions to really function well because you're so divided by all these micro differences of class, race, gender, whatever, that you hate everybody <laughs> and everybody hates you. And it's a horrible, toxic stew. And there's a piece recently that pointed out, which is a truth, which is totally accurate. I, I hear it all the time. All these major progressive groups, they can't do anything anymore. They're so consumed with who's being racist to whom, uh, on the most picayune, esoteric points of difference. Oh, you're a, you're a, you're a trans mask femme? That means that you're much more oppressed than me. I'm just trans. I mean, it gets down to that. And it's, it's crippling for institutions to run that way. It's also a horrible way to live. It makes you miserable. You, you have to go through life trying to find out who's been mean to you. It's a, it's a recipe for psychological panic and distress and anxiety. It's, it's, it's not good. People don't want this. But, you know, conservatives have also have this other aspect to their, their view of the world, which is, you know, reality is reality. These ideologies can come along and they can seize people's imaginations. They can appeal to certain parts of people's mentality, resentment, envy, the human desire for there to be some paranoid conspiracy theory controlling everything, like white supremacy, 
But we don't think it's true. And we don't think human nature has dramatically changed. I don't think 40% of the younger generation are LGBTQIA++. I don't at all. I think, I think it's probably the same as ever, which is probably 3 4% maybe. The rest is just posing. So let's just wait. As long as you don't completely concede, to keep the institutions in place. And that's why it's important to keep the liberal institutions, because they are the way in which we fight back legitimately and successfully. Otherwise, we're, we're in street warfare. But look, I understand. I totally understand the frustrations. It drives me crazy. I live among these liberals. I, I've lived among elite liberals my whole... I've worked in journalism, you know, and they're unbelievably frustrating. And the younger ones who've been pumped out by the Ivy League with this unbelievably enlarged sense of entitlement, it's really pathetic. Someone needs to just slap them down. And again, I do think it's there. We just have the will. You know, when people say, well, we can't do anything, we can't. Yes, you can. You can call it out. You can say, I'm not going to this bloody training. It's ridiculous. There's many differences between Britain and America, and you sort of cross that bridge, obviously. You make a good point about Boris Johnson and his failings in dealing with this on stuff, the culture wars in, in sort of specifically. And I think in America, you mentioned Ron DeSantis. Now, he's the governor of Florida. He's been very proactive in, in, in passing legislation, sort of trying to fight CRT in schools and stuff like that and, and sort of transports and all of, this, all of these things. And for many conservatives in America and I think in Europe as well, they look to Ron DeSantis as a sort of optimistic future. You know, this guy seems pretty sane. He doesn't tweet like Donald Trump and yet he sort of gets stuff done. And as I say, in Britain, we're not really having the same debate at least in the conservative circles, I don't think. And I think, what's your views on this, on sort of the differences between British conservatives and American conservatives? Now, obviously, you talk about Trump and his sort of musings about January the 6th and stuff like this. But let's- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Let's put that to one side. I know that's a very sort of hard thing to do. But it looks like the debate between sort of British and American conservatives, I, I would choose the American at the moment because it seems more developed in terms of like Ron DeSantis and other figures that I mentioned. Well, I, I wish I were more attuned to the British conversation about this. It requires levels of nuance. I think, you know, I, I do want my best to read what's going on over there. And I think there is a defensive crouch sometimes on cultural issues that is not, that is not necessary. So, for example, I do not believe, I am a gay man, I do not believe a three-year-old has to be taught about gender identity or homosexuality. I just, I, let's get boys and girls first. And, you know, that's, and, but maybe later, yes, of course, we're, we exist. It's a pact of life. They will see it in the general culture. Let, let that be explained to them as neutrally and objectively as possible. I'm not being a homophobe. I'm not transphobic. J.K. Rowling is not transphobic. People arguing that children should, extreme care should be taken when irreversibly medicating children. That's a completely legitimate argument. And instead of being constantly, well, I'm not this, I'm not that. No, just make the positive argument. Uh, Children are better off being left alone in elementary school, primary schools. And this stuff is clearly ideological and it's, I think, deeply destabilizing to children. I think it's particularly bad for gay kids who are suddenly told to question their own sex. A little gay boy told that he's probably a girl is both progressive doctrine and also at the same time, the worst kind of reactionary bigoted version together. There are plenty of good arguments to make that are self-confident that do not internalize the idea that we're racist. It's not racist to want to control immigration in your country, period. Not even a question of it. So there needs to be more, I think, self-confidence among the British Tories about these virtues. And they tend to be 
kind of kind of bullied by the left and you you can't let yourself be placed in that position and at the same time you don't want to take the bait and and prove them true and that's that's why trump is such a bloody disaster because he's what the left says the right is let's face it he is a bit of a bigot i mean it's no question about it he he's he i mean you could argue for example that we need to control immigration because we need better wages for the working classes we need we're, we're changing too quickly but he says they're coming in here to kill your grandma they're coming in here to sell you fentanyl and he will go to events where the people who have been killed by somebody somewhere who turns out to be an illegal immigrant that's you know that proves the left right so it's a very hard road to travel but a decent talented politician like DeSantis could do it Boris is too lazy and doesn't really believe anything. That's also true of Trump, by the way. But someone like DeSantis or somebody, I don't know who's, who's there in the Tory party. I, I, uh, but I, again, I think the public is with you. It, just be confident in that. So if it was DeSantis running in 24, and let's say by some miracle that Trump isn't running or somehow is defeated by DeSantis or whatever, would you switch your vote back to the Republicans? Because I don't think, I presume you haven't voted Republican in 20 years or something. I don't know. No, I haven't, because I haven't been, the last one I was able to support was um, Bush in 2000. So yeah, I would definitely be open to it, given where the Democrats are. I mean, I think it's always a, again, I think the conservative is not necessarily a partisan in these contexts. You know, part of what Oakshot, and here I'm going to bore you a tiny bit, but Oakshot's all about balance. It's all about keeping the remarkable achievement of liberal democratic free societies on an even keel. And that means sometimes you are gonna tilt to the left because that, that it's necessary to do that because things change. So for example, we have seen the real wages of people at the lower end of the wage stagnate. People be unable to get out of where they are because of all sorts of forces they're not ultimately responsible for. It's our job as conservatives to find ways to help those people to re readjust to see that actually maybe the Thatcher-Reagan revolution, for example, has become a victim of its own success. To be, be open to seeing things that have happened that we didn't intend that need to be corrected for. Equally, it's, it's a position that if we've gone too far to the left, we need to push back. And uh, so, yeah, I, I could absolutely support a DeSantis. If it was against Biden, I think I would. If it was against Kamala Harris, I, I, I'd be uh, getting an early, <laughs> early ballot. <laughs> I want to talk about one of your recent tweets, and it's interesting because it goes to a sort of debate in the conservative right in America. So I listened recently to a podcast you did with, what's it, Christopher Rufo, and you were responding to him. So you said, every Christmas season, British parents take their kids to pantomimes where drag queen is always one of the stars. Christopher Rufo says that they're taking their kids to see trans strippers. The post-truth right has truly arrived. Now, just to give people a bit of context, Christopher Rufo is an American journalist who tries to expose sort of critical race theory in schools and things like this, but he's also been talking a lot about drag queens recently because he views them as a sort of highly sexualized, them doing sort of highly sexualized parades and things like this in front of children as being perverse. And there's this meme on the right about groomers. They sort of talk about okay groomers and things like this, which this is the debate that you're, you're talking about. Now, you mentioned British pantomime shows, which everyone in Britain knows, as, as you say, there's a drag queen, but there's no sexualization at all within that. Isn't there a distinction here where Christopher Rufo is talking about highly sexualized drag acts, which have been shown in front of children? You can look at the videos on his Twitter or whatever, and the, the completely non-sexual drag act in a pantomime. So when you talk about the post-truth right, maybe you're sort of being a bit hypocritical there. Well, no. I wonder how many drag shows Chris Rufo has ever been to. I doubt, to be honest with you, I doubt any. I live in Provincetown. I'm surrounded by them. It's like, it's, they're everywhere. And the vast majority of drag queens are just ridiculous looking women in fabulous outfits for whatever. They're, they're really independent of any idea of transgender or anything like that. And they don't strip because if they did, it would give the game away. Are there some who have violated these things and done completely inappropriate things? Yes. Should they be allowed? No. Should we expose them? Yes. But you'll notice he has just maybe a handful 
You know, there are drag queen story hours in libraries all the time. And my senses, I mean, I took my niece and nephew when they were like, what was it, seven and four to Dina Martina, who's a, a, a drag show. Completely family friendly. We have another one here, completely family friendly. Now, would I take them to the late night drag show contest where all sorts of things go? No. But my assumption has been that the Drag Queen Story Hour was simply a way to get children engaged and interested in reading. And so they're kind of pseudo clowns. What I was objecting to with Chris is not that you shouldn't object to these, these sexualized versions, but he was intending consciously and said so, even though he knows these aren't the majority of cases to call all of them, rename drag queens as trans strippers, as a completely conscious attempt to use language to redefine an issue, which meant actually talking about the vast majority of them, saying things about them that's not true. So that's my position. <laughs> I think it makes sense. You know, drag queens can be fun and kids love them in a way. And if they're passing out balloons and asking kids to draw or reading a story to them, it's fine if it's gone past that, if there's stuff going on that shouldn't, yeah, we should root that out and we should expose it and we should stop it. And to be quite honest, the people running the Drag Queen story, I need to be much more vigilant about that. But I, I, I do think, look, when the question was teaching critical gender theory to three or four year olds, and whether that's appropriate or not, is again, a perfectly legitimate question. To accuse every teacher who has implemented that curriculum as being wanting to have sex with the children, to groom them, to abuse them. I mean, that's disgusting. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's the ugliest form of smear to call everyone child abusers. Similarly, to call every drag queen a trans stripper. Now, I, can you hear the, the dog whistle is so loud, it's deafening. This is, this is an attempt to gin up classic old anti-gay, homophobic, attitudes towards children. We've been through this many times before. You know, back in the 70s, there was an attempt to ban all gay teachers from California's high schools. It was doing very well until one person stood up against it in California and said, this is bigoted, it's wrong, there are so many teachers who are doing good work, you're associating all these good teachers with a few, and it's wrong. And that person was Ronald Reagan, who single-handedly stopped the Briggs Initiative. So. I'm not dumb. <laughs> I know what the games that these people are playing. And the thing about Rufo, whom I've tried to engage before, as you know, I haven't been a I'm in hostile. I think he's done good work. But when it turns into this completely cynical use of really ugly moods that people have and a completely conscious attempt to rename things, to use language, instead of making arguments, to use language to redefine the debate. This is what the woke do every day. And so his view is, yes, I know it is. I'm doing it back. If they can make up new terms that advance their aims, I'm going to do it in reverse. The trouble is when you do it in reverse that way, you start stirring up themes and ideas that are really ugly and that can lead to harm. I mean, we, we thought we'd left some of this anti-gay stuff a long time way behind. But this weekend, the Texas Republican Party has come out in their platform and said that homosexuality is an abnormal, immoral lifestyle back to the 70s. They know that that kind of anti-gay, especially with respect to protecting children, is an incredibly powerful tool, which is why grown-up people do not throw it around. Let's talk about social conservatism, which is a fascinating topic and group of people. I've read some interesting books by, let's say, Peter Hitchens and other British writers. Ed West, he's fantastic on this stuff. You know, two very, very different writers, but, but, you know, talking about the death of sort of social conservatism within Britain and more broadly within the West. And they go back to the 1950s onwards and they see the sexual revolution as a sort of series of events, of progressive events, which have many, many fantastic results in ways that you've described, you know, for, for homosexual people and others and the liberation of, of women and everything else. But they do also say that there have been unintended consequences of these revolutions. And perhaps they would even say that the woke cultural revolution, the recent, the recent debates that we're having, is all a result 
of everything that's been happening since, let's say, the 1960s, for example. And it's a sort of logical conclusion of, the, of what started in the sexual revolution and has ended up here. What do you say to social conservatives? Social conservatives, sorry. Social conservatism, it's, it all, of course, it all depends a little bit on how, what you mean by that. Cause it's, but so, for example, it will never go out of fashion that two parents bring up a child in their own household will always, almost always, I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but in the general, will always lead to better adjusted, more successful, happier offspring. We, the, it's one of the data that's the, the most powerful we see out there. Is that if you don't have a father in your life, you will be irreparably damaged in comparison with someone who does. We just had Father's Day here. I don't know whether it was Father's Day there. Okay. So policies that simply treat fathers as irrelevant are clearly going to hurt people. So stable families, intact marriages, the sacrifices that are required to achieve that, which are difficult. You do, adults put off lots of things to take care of children. That will always matter. And insofar as what's happened is that that has not happened, that we've these kids are being brought up without fathers, it's perfectly legitimate to say, we need to bring some ethic back. And you say this especially for minority communities in America who are the most affected by this. 70% of young black kids don't have a father in the home. With Asian Americans, it's like 20 to 30%. And you ask why Asian Americans are doing so much better in school, succeeding so much better, you don't have to look much further. But in order to avoid that reality, they say, well, there's this other thing working that we can't quite explain. It's called white supremacy, and it somehow prevents black kids from doing well. Well, no. Give them a father, they'll do fine. And for me, the, the marriage question for gay people was not about destroying marriage. It was about finding a structure for gay couples to get better stability, more integration into society, so that in fact it would be positive and a rather small c conservative measure. And I think that's happened, to be honest with you. Gay men are always gonna be horny, always gonna be having sex with one another. It's just because they're men. Lesbians are gonna be much more settled down, more so than straight people because they're women. And, but within that context, you can make things a little better. You can add incentives. So if there are benefits that are encouraging fatherlessness, then we should end them. If there are ways in which we can encourage fatherhood, then we should. On the other hand, some of these questions are really not within the government to impose. They're cultural and social. I also think supporting the benefits of religion is also integral to a liberal society working, actually. Well, religion's a really interesting topic, and I wanted to ask you about that very briefly because you're a Catholic, right? And, and this is, must be you know, a big part of your personal philosophy and sort of moral code. And obviously we've seen the decline of religion in a huge way in Britain, and it's even accelerating in the United States. How do you view the outcome of this for society? I think we have underestimated the importance of Christianity to certain core ideas that many of us take for granted. For example, and perhaps most important, the individual soul, the inviolability of the individual, because everyone is made in the image of God and no one's dignity can be stripped, period. Wokeness is about groups. It's, it's about actually sacrificing individuals for the sake of the group. If we don't have a vibrant Christianity, then we don't have the resources philosophically to counter what are essentially nihilistic, atheistic, group-oriented philosophies, which, by the way, are by far the most popular on Earth, have always been the majority of polities. My worry is that as Christianity declines, as the sense of the individual and his or her inviolability declines, the closer we get to forms of tyranny and collectivization. And just as Christianity in the end was the one thing that withstood Soviet communism, so I think it's still vital for it to oppose much less authoritarian, but still authoritarian tendencies in our own culture. So I worry about that. I also worry about meritocracy in this account, because if you have no sense that you're worth 
everything, that you're as good as anyone else, because God made you. You have that sense of your self-worth. And that what matters is how you behave in your life, not how much money you earn, how famous you are, how many likes you got on your Instagram. You're much less sensitive to other people's opinions and therefore much more psychologically resilient. And what you see today is people needing reassurance, validation, affirmation endlessly. Because without them from outside, they feel lost, insecure, ignored, irrelevant, meaningless. The worst thing you can do to a human being is, is create a situation in which we no longer need them for something. Now, Christianity provides, if you believe it, the sense of your worth regardless of your money, regardless of your power, regardless of your success. In fact, it's an, a religion against success. It's a religion about the paradox of failure as sometimes spiritually successful. So I think that element of the, the human psyche, the need to understand that you are worth something, has if it isn't centered inside the soul and with God, then it will find something else and those other things will make you miserable in the end. Those are two very broad ways. But I don't think it's a question of regulating people's sex lives or whatever. I, I, think, I, I just don't think the government should be involved in that much detail. But I do think we should encourage the proper rearing of the next generation. That's important. Let's talk about the Democrats briefly. Do you think they lack a distinct sort of political talent that you see? I mean, you voted for or you endorsed Barack Obama in 2008. Obviously, now we've got Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, sort of Pete Buttigieg and all these other characters. Do you value any of them? Do you rate any of them? Can you see you voting for any of them? The weird thing about the Democrats is they were the worst. I mean, you come over here and you're like, God, they are so useless at everything. I mean, they really are. They don't know how to communicate. They don't have a clear message. They bungle every opportunity they have. And for example, right now, Biden had an opportunity to, to entirely focus on economics, on helping the working class and the poor. You could do a whole bunch of things that wouldn't make much difference. It would certainly send a message. But what's he doing? He's making sure that trans children get sex changes and that racial discrimination happens throughout the federal government to make sure there are enough of this, that and the other population. The Democrats generally are useless unless they have, and they've been lucky every now and again, a really gifted person who comes up and kind of shakes them around. And you can see that with Bill Clinton, who was an extraordinary talent. I mean, he was a shit, but he was a talent and a, and a brilliant, brilliant talent. And Obama, another, you know, man way ahead of almost anyone else in his generation and his ability. But Adlai Stevenson, Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale, Michael Dukakis, all these people, Al Gore, all these people have this incredibly irritating, condescending, ugh, they drive you crazy if you want to, if you support them, you just think, why can't you say something straightforward and, and sensible? Why are you bungling all your strengths and highlighting all your weaknesses? So, and I, I'll be honest with you, I, 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 don't, I think Biden is, is proving to be a completely pathetic president. And I don't think it's necessarily his fault. I think he's, he's just too old to do this. But who else? I mean, 2024, who have they got? They want to run Kamala? I mean, are they out of their minds? They may insist on doing so, because if they didn't do so, they'd be racist and sexist. And that's where they are. They don't actually want to win. So I yell at them all the time. I'm not hostile to Democrats as an institution. I think I, I, I believe both parties have a role in all our, both our countries, an important role, but they are the most, it's, oh, Jesus Lord, it's, it's really dreadful. Um, I mean, I guess Labour's had a bunch of awful leaders too. They need another Obama, they need another Clinton. Obama, by the way, would have won a third term, I think and all of history will be different. The funny thing about Kamala Harris is that she, she did absolutely terribly in the elections for the, for, to become the candidate, right? I mean, she, she dropped out really early because no one liked her, but because of, I guess because of her characteristics, she was chosen. You're being very delicate with that term. Yes, yeah, she, 
<laughs> she was appointed because of her race and her sex, period. But again, you have a party that's honestly obsessed with the color of people's skin as opposed to what they plan to do or their actual talents. You mentioned the economy earlier. You were a Thatcherite, you supported Reagan. Obviously, they came to power after the 1970s. Lots of people making comparisons between the 1970s and today with inflation and all these other sort of crises that are going on. How do you view the solution to inflation? Is it monetarism or is it something else? Should we look at supply side issues, for example? What should we do? Well, obviously, right now, the inflation is strongly related to the pandemic's crippling of supply. So in some ways, it's, it's not that hard to understand or explain, although it's the job of governments to figure this out in advance. I think inflation becomes the only issue after a while if it persists. And the job is simply who is going to stop it. And I think the Fed has been way too loose. I think that the stimulus that Biden did was too big. If you think about what he wanted to do, God only knows how much more inflation would we have. But it's not all his fault. Unless it's, there are structural things that are doing this. But uh, you'll see the Fed raising rates. We are going to be in stagflation probably in 18 months' time. That means that the incumbent is pretty up the gum tree. And this is the thing about Biden. He commands no one's attention. He says nothing memorable. He does not have the ability to really lead. What he was was the the only way that the Democrats could figure out to stop Trump. That's why he was elected. The other issue is crime, which was the other issue back then. And again, this is a golden opportunity for conservative reformer, because a party that, even if it doesn't officially say this, all its members keep saying it, defunding the police at a time when murders are going through the roof, uh, murders, I might add, overwhelmingly of African-Americans, not by cops, but by civilians. And the Democrats seem as if that's okay with them, as long as the police aren't mistreating people. And look, it doesn't have to be either or. The cops should be professional, should not abuse. At the same time, we need them. We need more of them. So a Republican that says, I'm going to try and... It's not in the president's remit for policing. It's a local state issue, so can't really do that. But supporting governors and mayors who are really increasing crime. Go out there, go with Eric Adams in New York City and champion cracking down on crime and homelessness, all that stuff. That's what you need to do. Biden can't, he's too weak. But inflation, wokeness, stagflation, it's for the picking for a good conservative candidate. And my view is that the main person who can prevent this is Trump and his continuing hold, cult-like hold, on a solid amount of the Republican base. On that very sort of depressing, maybe even Salisbury-like note, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll end, end the interview. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us. Thank you. What a pleasure to have such extremely tough, intense, informed questioning. I, 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 trust me, I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.